Here's the passage that, that we'll be spending most of our time in today. It's in the New Testament. It's in the book of Hebrews. Its authorship has been debated as to who, who it is. Some say Paul, some say someone else. Um, it doesn't identify within itself who the author is. So that's, that's, that's some interesting study for you. You know, some of the New Testament books are easy to determine their authorship. This one's a little more challenging. Nonetheless, it is part of the Bible. It's 100% true. It's been accepted into the canon of Scripture, and we can trust it to give us things not only that will be interesting and inspire us, but that will change our lives if we'll welcome it in and we'll, we'll really think about it and let it become part of us. Here's what it says. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. He's quoting the Old Testament here, the author is. Then he says, I, he's speaking of God, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Man, that would be a great way to start off the whole message this morning. Here's God saying, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. Do you know that when God forgives, it says he remembers them no more? That doesn't mean that he's incapable of, you know, it's not like he right clicks a part of history and deletes it. It means he no longer brings it back up again. It's no longer in the front. It's no longer something he needs to act on because when he goes back to that part in your life and you say, God, but you remember two years ago when I this, that, or the other thing? He says, no, all I see is Jesus' blood over that page. I don't, see, I don't see that anymore. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds. I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can... Now, this word would have been shocking in the ears of the people who heard it the first time. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. Now, for you and I, that might not mean as much, but for someone who was a Hebrew, who was of the Jewish descent, to think about boldly entering the holy of holies was just not a thought that ever fit into their mind. You did not go in there. It was an actual geographical place called the Holy of Holies. And only one person, the high priest, could go into that place and only one time a year. You didn't ever go in there boldly. And if you were just a normal person, not a priest, you never went in there. But, but the writer says, now we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place place and since we have a great high priest who rules over god's house let us go right into the presence of god with sincere hearts fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water there's a lot that needs further discussion here i am putting myself in the shoes of someone who might be totally new to church and we've already sung with instruments and drums and um (laughs) And now we're talking about this verse that talks about being sprinkled with blood and, and washed with water. And, and, it, and it's a lot to try and, and, and wrap your mind around. I just want you to relax for a second. We'll do the best that we can to try and help make some sense out of this. Uh, and we'll come back into that verse um, in a moment. But the, I want to I just get right to the point. The big idea, the one statement that I really want to make sure that we, have, that we grab onto this morning is that to know God better, you must seek his presence. To know God better. If you want to know him better, you have to be in his presence. Now, on a very human level, this makes a lot of sense. How do you get to know someone better if they're only absent from you? To know someone better, you want to be present where they are. To be in their presence, to be near them, to hear their voice, to feel their touch. To know what they smell like, what they look like, what they think, what they feel. God's presence is 
truly, truly the most wonderful thing. It really is. Some of you, I, I realize, might not know whether to agree with that or not because maybe you don't recognize if you've ever experienced that firsthand or not. I can tell you as someone who experiences God's presence firsthand in my life and knows what it's like. It's incomparable. It's incomparable. When I feel the most discouraged and I can go into the presence of God, it's as though that discouragement just melts right off of me. And I feel once again strong and courageous. When I feel alone, when I feel attacked, when I feel challenged, when I feel offended, when I feel weak, I know that if I can experience the closeness of God, those things begin to reverse their course in my life. To be in the presence of the Almighty and it to be so personal so tangible, so real. I don't have a vocabulary that's good enough to get it exactly right, to tell you how that really is. The best thing I can do is give you analogies and tell you kind of what it's like. And for any of us who have ever experienced what it's like to be in God's presence, it really is a unique and wonderful and awe-inspiring and awesome and, and fearful. And, and it's, it's all those different things well, together, they, they would be able to say, I, I, I run out of words after a while. But if you really, really want to know God better, you have to seek. You have to seek out his presence. Why do you feel so passionate about this, Pastor Phil? I, uh, because I am convinced that the reason that most of the world who choose to reject Jesus have done so is because they haven't had an accurate introduction to who he really is people who resist God and reject God, I'm not convinced that all of them have had a real accurate personal experience or introduction to who he really is. I don't want to put it all in one bucket. There's many reasons. I also know this, that if I believe that the presence of God is what really changes lives and transforms people and draws them close to him, then it must be at the center of Echo Community Church. And it must be what we're all about. And there can be nothing more important than creating an atmosphere for people to connect with the presence of God. Anytime anything else becomes more important than that, we lose a little bit of the authenticity about what this whole Christ journey is supposed to be all about. I read a quote from a, a megachurch pastor just last night. Didn't make it into my notes, but it's fresh in my mind. He said this, and it's a, it's a sobering quote about church. He said, most churches could accomplish anything they want without God so long as they have a good crowd of people, good resources, and a common denominator or a common objective. Think about it. If you have enough people, enough money, and a goal, they might not even need God to get after it. You want We've said, you know, part of our vision is we hope that we can grow to be a congregation of 500 people to establish a permanent ministry home in Perry Hall and then go out and launch more campuses throughout the community. I'm not saying for a second that I don't think that that's part of God's heart for us, but not at the expense of his presence. Because with enough people, enough money, we could be doing that right now. You understand? We don't have to pray about it. We could just go do it. That's dangerous. I want those things to be birthed out of a presence of God. Don't get me wrong. I like, I like all the strategy and the church growth stuff and the, the looks and the logos and the design and all those kinds of things. But the moment that those things compete with the presence of God, 
they become idols to us. They become dividing issues. And then we might as well just worship those things and praise those things. Those things don't change people's lives. The presence of God does. And so it's not like we're going to say, all right, you know, we're not going to have a sound system anymore and not care about those things. No, we do. They just have to fall in the right order. They have to fall in the right priority place. And it's important to me. Why? I said in a membership class today, teaching a membership class, talking to different people, and I'm listening to their story about how they came to find Echo. We have a dozen people um, that are going to be becoming members here at Echo. Um, from all over the world, it was interesting today. You know, you have one who says, I grew up in Congo and then lived in Haiti for six years and then... Uh, you know, all over the place, started listing all the countries. Another one grew up in Liberia. Another one grew up in Kenya. Another one, you know, and then the boring ones of us are just here from Baltimore, you know. Um, and I'm listening, and, 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 and one of the precious ladies in our class said, you know, I've lived five minutes from this campus for seven years. And she said, I've been, her exact words are so sweet, so sincere. Uh, she's one of the nurses that's going to be going with us to Haiti this fall. And she said, you know, I, I've been on the market looking for a church and praying to find a home church for years. And she said, you know, I heard of this campus and told how she heard of it. She said, heard about it from her son who goes to another campus but was aware of this campus. And she said, I came here and she said, Lord, she said, I've just prayed to God, God, if this is where you want me to be, then you have to show me. And here's what she said. She said, that morning, I sensed the presence of God here. And I knew I was home. Now, that's her way of explaining something in just a few words that to some of us, we say we know what she means. Others, what did she mean when she says she sensed the presence of God? It is a little abstract, it's a little strange, it's a little weird. I would say it's probably unique to all of us. How you might sense and experience God's presence might be unique to you, might be different from the way that I do. But for lack of better words, and many books have been written on it, well, how do you know? You just kind of know. You just kind of know. It's different. Sometimes it feels differently today to me than it did a couple of hours ago. But she says it was the presence of God. A young man came up to me last week who is really struggling. He was, he was raised in a different uh, faith system. And God's really been dealing with him about some of his core beliefs. And he said to me, after last week's, he said, he said, I've never felt what I'm feeling today. It's like I'm feeling something. There's a feeling attached to this. And it's different. He said, but I'm feeling like God has invited me to let go maybe of some of the wrong things that I believed if it means that I can experience more of what I'm feeling of him right now. I'm not willing to sacrifice that. But there is a cost to saying we're going to be a church built on the power and the presence of God. And I'm hoping that maybe this morning I can do enough just to stir your appetite to walk a little closer to Jesus this week to walk a little closer to Jesus today, to boldly go right into his presence and experience for yourself what it means not to just have occasional visits, but to walk with God in his presence. You know, there's only one human being that knew what that was like every day. And he also knew what it was like to lose it, talking about Adam. And here's a man who walked in the cool of the morning face to face with God. But because of sin, he was separated from it. He lived another 900 and some odd years after that. I'm sure he talked to his great, 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 great. You know, could you see him saying, you know, great, 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 grandpa, what was it like? What was it like? What is he like? Some people who have done some historical work, and I don't know the accuracy of it, suggest that Adam lived in a great depression for most of his life. 
because of what he lost. I don't know if that's true or not. It's not hard for me to build a case for it, but it's interesting. But if you feel like you're not walking as close to God as you'd like to, or maybe even as you once were, this is not irreversible. Why don't you just open up your heart right now and let him draw you right back in to his presence this morning? Here's the problem. The problem is that while lost people are dying because they don't know God, the church is starving because they don't seek God's presence. Let's not settle for only knowing about the presence of God in theory when we are invited to boldly push in and experience the presence of God in all of its unparalleled reality. Here's the problem. There is a world that does not know Jesus the way many of us in this room know Jesus. They're not on the pathway to eternal life with God. They're on a pathway to eternal separation from him through death and through hell. And the reason for that is because they don't know God and they're dying because of it. But yet you could walk into many of our churches. I will never forget the conversation I had with a pastor when I was in Kenya. And he asked me about the church that I came from. And he said, you know, I've been to the United States and I've been in your churches. He said, there's many big buildings with many empty seats. He says, there's no passion for God. There's no passion for him in your worship. He said, he said, you Americans ask me how many people are in my church. He said, the truth is, I don't know. I have trouble figuring out how to baptize 800 people every week in water who got saved last week to count them very accurately. And we have a world that's lost because they don't know Jesus. We have a church that's starving because we don't seek his presence anymore. I don't want to just, I believe in education. Believe me, I believe in education. My wife's more educated than I. I hope to follow in her footsteps and get more degrees in at some point. Um, I have a pastor that has earned his doctorate, and I'm not dismissing that. We have people in this room probably much more educated than I, so please, I'm not dismissing education. But I don't want to be so academic and religious and theoretical about understanding doctrinally the presence of God that I don't experience it for what it really is. You understand what I mean by that? It's not just something to know about. It's something to experience. And we're invited to experience it. And there is a way to experience it. There is a way in the Old Testament to experience it. And a way that when Jesus died on the cross, it all changed. I hope that this morning in some small way, I can do justice to that story enough for us to appreciate and not take for granted the historic opportunity that you and I have that for thousands of years was not available to people who wanted to taste of God's presence. I lifted a quote out of Tozer's book that really inspired me that I thought fit here well. He says, the presence of God is the central fact of Christianity. At the heart of the Christian message is God himself waiting for his redeemed children to push into conscious awareness of his presence. It's central to all of Christianity. Christianity is boring and stale and shallow and disappointing were it not for the presence of God. It's a bunch of rules and do's and don'ts and people to enforce the do's and the don'ts. You take the presence of God out of this and it isn't. The presence of God is the central fact of all of it and at the heart of it is God waiting on you and I to push in and experience an awakening in our spirit that he is not out there somewhere. He's around me. He's upon me. And if I choose to welcome him in, he will be within me. That's what this is. That's what this is. 
That's what wakes me up in the morning. That's what keeps me pushing forward even when I run into obstacles and when I feel discouraged and I feel alone and I feel attacked. I keep pushing in because if that's the cost that I have to pay to have more of his presence in my life, I will pay it a thousand times over. You can't say that until you've tasted of his presence and then you will die for it. And you won't last long if you're deprived from it. God desires more than a theoretical, doctrinal, abstract relationship with his kids. He wants us to experience his presence actually. So what is his presence? And where is it? And in five minutes, I have to define something that people have written doctrinal theses on. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do it. Let me just give you a quick flyover of what the presence of God is. The presence of God is kind of expressed in three different ways. Um, these are a little theological in their terminology, but we'll walk through them briefly this morning. We could talk more about this in the future, but just kind of three different expressions of God's presence. One is the omnipresence of God, which means God is everywhere. He is omnipresent, everywhere present. Here's what the Bible tells us about that. There's a bunch of different verses that tell us about it, but Psalm 139, David writes, I can never escape from your spirit. In other translations, they translated it presence. In other words, there's no place in the earth I can go where your spirit, I can never get away from your presence. There's no place I can go. In Isaiah, we read the whole earth, not just parts of it, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. So here's the deal. There's no way for me to be absent from the omnipresence of God, whether you are a person who lives outside of relationship with God or you're in relationship with God. God's presence is everywhere. He sees it all. He hears it all. He knows it all. And one of the scary verses of the Bible is even the things you think are secret, God will eventually bring to light. Yikes. There's no little switch that you can click to click off God's omnipresence even for a few minutes. Jack Bauer can't do it. No one can do it. Okay? You cannot disable God's omnipresence. Even with Chloe working with him, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. He is everywhere present. But we weren't really designed necessarily to have a deep, intimate relationship with the omnipresence of God. But nonetheless, you can still look around and see his fingerprints everywhere because he made it all. It's difficult to reject and deny a God who filled the earth with everything you see. You can't go anywhere without, even in the most stark moonscape of terrain, he made it. And it cries out, if you believe what Psalm says, David says, all of God's creation praises him, halal, to reveal him. Everything he made is autobiographical. You can look at a tree, and if you, if you, I mean, I'm not into finding God in trees, but he made it, and it'll tell you something about the person who made it if you think about it. It's omnipresence. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Then there's the manifest presence of God. That means God's presence upon me. That word manifest, um, other synonyms for it, it means when God's presence becomes tangible or able to be sensed using your five senses. You can see something, you can hear something, you can feel something, you can taste something, smell something. All of the, if you read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God's presence is revealed in all those different modes. In fact, it's one of the reasons they burned incense in the, the temple. They wanted it to be a sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. So you have like these stories in Second Chronicles in the Old Testament when they were doing their church dedication service, so to speak. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven, 
burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw with their eyes, saw the fire coming down, and all the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, He's good, His faithful love endures forever. I want you to know that God's presence isn't always just like this invisible omnipresence thing. He wants you to sense him and know that he's here. He wants you to be able to hear him, to see him, to feel him, to touch him, to taste, to smell, and taste and see that the Lord is good. He invites us to know him personally, which is next week's message, so I won't go there yet. He wants you to know him. I know another person by experiencing them in a sensory capacity. And I want you to know the presence of God. When we say, I can feel the presence of God, it might be cliche, but it's absolutely 100% biblically sound. In the Old Testament, it looked a little different. They saw fire coming down. Sometimes it was smoke so thick you couldn't see in front of you. But it was very visible, the manifest presence of God upon people. Other examples, I mean, you, you, you might not have recognized this, but there's lots of other examples in the Bible. Um, God spoke to Moses out loud. There was a bush that wasn't consumed. You had God speaking out loud to Samuel at Jesus' baptism. You have John the Revelator who lost all of his bodily strength and saw and heard into the spirit world and wrote a book about it called Revelation. You have the Virgin Mary who gets pregnant, the Spirit of God upon her. Saul of Tarsus, before he became Paul, gets thrown to the ground and sees a brilliant blinding light from heaven in a voice that speaks to him out loud in the book of Acts chapter 2 you have what appeared to be tongues of fire that came and sat upon the head of about 120 people who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, spoke in other languages. You have the glory of God descending like a cloud and all of Israel falling to their face. Manifestations, and Paul talks about them, when God makes his presence manifested, you can feel it. It's really, it's really for two real reasons, to build up the body of Christ and to reveal God to the world. It's not to make you feel better and think you're better than somebody else. When you experience the presence of God upon you, it's not to elevate you above other people. It's to build you up in your spirit and to help reveal God to the world. They are meant to refresh, encourage, and heal. They were meant, and, and here's the thing though, the manifest presence of God was meant, was, was meant for us to experience, but it's not something you necessarily experience 24-7. <laughs> that doesn't mean you can't experience God's presence, but that manifest presence, I wouldn't be able to work very well <laughs> if I was always experiencing that type of, of the manifest presence of God in my life. That's what this third expression talks about. Then, then you have this other one, the more recent development in history, the indwelling presence of God. That's God's presence within me. So you have God is everywhere. You have God upon me. And you have God within me. I wish I had more time to talk about this morning. Jesus teases this concept a little bit. Have you ever wondered what he really meant when he said, you'll do greater things than what you've seen? Because he, he says the Spirit of God is upon me to do da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But he also says there will come a time when the Spirit of God won't just be upon you like he's upon me. He will be within you. And then look out because of what you will be able to do with him living inside of you. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives. Here's, here's This phrase is huge. Because he lives with you now before Jesus went to the cross. And later, after I die on the cross and raised from the dead and the veil of the temple is rent, it will be in you. So Jesus is saying at this point in history, the Holy Spirit's with you. But later on, he will be in you. 
First Corinthians chapter three tells us a little bit more. He's, Paul says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the spirit of God lives inside of you? It's interesting. Tozer says this, the instant cure of most of our religious ills would be to enter the presence and spiritual experience to become suddenly aware that we are in God and God is in us. We're in him. He's in us. What does that mean, Pastor? It means, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, at the moment that you decide to surrender your life to Jesus, to follow him, to renounce your sin, to accept forgiveness, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that at that moment, God's spirit fuses together with your spirit so that the two are one. Upon salvation, God's glorious presence now is still omnipresent and he's still manifest at times and places of his choosing, but it means that his presence is with you always already inside of you. That's where he is. That's where he is. And if he's in there all the time, the problem is he's in there, his presence is within us and his spirit is within us and we live in complete oblivion to it. And that's the challenge for all of us. So you have the omnipresence of God, the manifest presence of God, the indwelling presence of God. That's what entered my spirit upon salvation. That's the resting place. Well, how did it, how did it get there? I thought God's spirit was just in one place at one time. Let me give you a let me give you a quick history lesson on how this all played out, and then we'll give you the practical application of this. Do you realize that when we were reading that verse in Hebrews, that the people who heard it first were probably shocked by that, entering boldly into the Holy of Holies? Let me give you a quick history lesson on where this all came from. You understand, Israel had something called the tabernacle. It was the portable home for God. He gave them specific instructions. He said, as you're going from point A to point B, my presence will go with you. And every place that you stop, you're going to set up the tabernacle. That's where my presence, and he told Moses, he's like, and my presence will rest inside the tabernacle, in the, inside the holy place, in the holy of holy place, and my presence will come down and rest above the wings of the mercy seat, or above the cherubim, and that's where I will talk to you face to face. And he gave them very specific instructions. And all of the instructions that he gave the people of Israel, he said, if you want to approach my presence, this is where you must come. And so you have to understand this verse in Hebrews meant more to them. Let's talk about the tabernacle for a second. It, it had an outer court that anybody was welcome to come to. Had an outer court? I'll simplify. Outer court, holy place, holy of holies. There's some more things in there, but those three kind of concentric, they weren't circles, they were rectangles. The outer court was 450 feet the whole way around. It was white linen the whole way around, just white. Only one entrance on the east side. You can only come in on the east side. And that's where God said, I want the tribe of Judah to always camp on the east side. Now, Judah was the kingly tribe. Judah means praise. In other words, he's saying, anytime you want to approach the presence of God, you come with your praise. And there's one entrance, not five entrances, not six entrances. He said, there will be one entrance to the tabernacle because there's only one way to God. And that's through Jesus Christ. There's a 30-foot gate that was a curtain it wasn't white. It was purple and blue and red. It was beautiful. And anybody at any time of the day could come. They could come through, through there and they could come into the outer courts. No one was forbidden to come. Of course, you didn't come empty-handed. If you would come to the tabernacle, if you were of Hebrew descent and you wanted to come to the tabernacle to approach the presence of God, it was for one reason. It was because you had recognized that you had sinned and that it needed to be made right. And you couldn't just kneel at your bed and pray there had to be a sacrifice made for your sins. So you would go and take one of your animals that was perfect and you would approach the gate bringing your sacrifice with you. And when you would go through the gate, you would be met immediately by a priest who would be standing by a big, huge bronze altar, square. It was as high as the linens were. 
And you would present that sacrifice to the priest and they would make sure that it was an appropriate sacrifice. And then there was this kind of this gory graphic scene that we sanitize a lot, but it's what happened. At that point, the priest would invite you to put your hand upon the head of the animal that you brought. And symbolically, what you're transferring is you're transferring your guilt and saying, really, what should be happening to me is going to happen to this animal. So they made you put your hands on that animal that you raised, that perfect, innocent animal, and transfer your blame to them. And then the priest would slice the throat of the animal killing the animal, collect all the blood in a bowl. And then they would take that bowl and they would pour it in front of, pour that blood in front of the altar and then they would offer the animal as a sacrifice for your sins to God. That's as far as you or I could go. At that point, it was left up to the priest to carry it the rest of the way to present it to God. So you came, you presented your sacrifice to the priest. Now, think about it. I know it's graphic and gory, but man, you'd think more seriously about sin if you recognize what it cost every time you did it. what the New Testament talks about, that every time you and I as believers sin, it's like we're crucifying and slaughtering him all over again. So the priest, after he's made the sacrifice, he goes from there and he, he walks from the altar to the next step beyond that, which is a bronze wash basin. Everything outside the, temp, the, the holy place was bronze. Everything inside was gold. So he, he, every time before he'd enter in there, he'd have to thoroughly wash his hands and his feet because you couldn't take any dirt into the presence of God. And that place, when you walked in the holy place, it was completely draped and curtained. No external light was supposed to go in there. And we could go into more about what the different things on the inside mean. There's there a process to this. The priest would then, on your behalf, go in and make atonement for your sin to God. Once a year, they could go to the next room, which was called the Holy of Holies. You and I could never go there. But the high priest, one time a year, annually on Yom Kippur for his sins and for all the sins of the nation of Israel would take the sacrifice through the Holy of Holies into the most holy place. And there is where he would experience the glorious presence of God. Now, why do you say all that, Pastor? For a couple of reasons. Number one, if you lived before Jesus Christ and you weren't the high priest, the best you could do was see the presence of God. You couldn't experience it for yourself like we do today. You could see it, watch it. He couldn't live inside of you. In fact, you have these stirring stories in the Old Testament when Moses and Aaron would go into the tabernacle. All the people would come outside of their tents and they would stand outside of their tents and they would watch him. They would watch them going into the presence of God just waiting to get a word from there. You didn't boldly go into the Holy of Holies. If you went in there with sin and not with the right process, you dropped dead. You couldn't bring sin into God's presence. Here's what Hebrews says. Hebrews says, now when Jesus hung on the cross, something, this weird detail is included in the story. It says, when Jesus hung on the cross, the moment he died, something simultaneously happened at a different geographical location in Israel. In the temple, which was, you know, they didn't, once they came to Israel, they didn't need a tabernacle. They built a permanent home. They weren't a mobile church anymore. They were permanent. And they built a place, but it still had the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place and the Outer Courts and all that type of stuff. In the Holy of Holies, the moment Jesus died, the tall curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. And it flew open, and it, and it was like God was saying, look, if it was from the bottom to the top, they could have had a conspiracy theory that a human being did it, so I'm going to rip it from the top to the bottom so I get credit for it. And when it flew open, God said there is no need anymore to keep people out of God's presence because of sin. One sacrifice has been made now, and I accept it all. Now, when you read Hebrews, do you understand what he means when he says, listen, let's go boldly into the most holy place of heaven. Our consciences have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, and our, not just our hands and our feet, our entire bodies have been washed 
and pure water. So we don't have to be afraid to go into the presence of God anymore. That's the invitation. There's no barriers, guys. The veil has been torn. You can now experience God's presence in all of its fullness. So why don't we? Why don't we? How do I get there? Let me give you these three things real quick. How do I seek an experience? Here's what, before I read. Before I read that, another quote from Tozer. Ransomed men need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push, in, push on into his presence and live our whole lives there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It's more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. So how do I seek it? Number one, I have to put my former self to death through confession and repentance. How do I get more of God in my life? You have to die to yourself. That's abstract. It is. The closer you walk to God, the more terrifying sense it will make. There's my old self and there's the me that God wants me to be. And the two of those guys just battle nonstop. It's like a fight to the death, really. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven, but inside of me there's still this raging argument between the old me and the new me. There's stuff I know I shouldn't want to do and I shouldn't think and it's the wrong thing and I keep wanting to do them. And then there's the new me that God wants me to be and the things that I should want to do but I don't have any desire to do today and the two of them are fighting all the time for who gets to be in charge. He says the solution is crucifixion. You have to put the old self to death. Every day. Every day. You'll fight it the rest of your life. That's the good news. Congratulations. But really, you have to put your old self to death. Here's, here's the stark reality of this. Even though the veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of us has been torn, there's probably still a veil keeping you and me from God, and it's that veil of self that's still in our heart that needs to be torn up. Because there's, there's sin that keeps us from God. There's the sins that we do and the sins that we are. The stuff that we do, we're generally mindful of. It's the things that we are that are sinful that are much more subtle because they just seem like it's part of myself. And it is. And that's why that old self has to be put together. You know, self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness. All the other self things. Self-confidence. Self-admiration. Self-idolatry. All those kinds of things are the things that keep us from experiencing God. It's really not a God thing. It's a self thing. If I'm not experiencing God's presence, it's a problem on my end, not his. And the way that you deal with that is you have to put it to death. And some of these things, you know, to, to defeat self, to tear the veil, we have to put self to death. It's never fun to die, but nevertheless, crucify ourselves. we must. This is what the cross did to Jesus, and it's what the cross would want to do to every man to set him free. We can't tinker our way into this. God must do everything for us. We have to yield and to trust him. Then we confess it, we forsake it, and we leave it behind and we consider it to be crucified there. The cross is a rough, gory, graphic, but nonetheless effective thing. It doesn't let its victim hang there forever. There is a point when its work is done and the old is dead and all that's left in front of it is the joy of seeing it resurrected and having new life. That's what Paul said. He says, if you've been crucified with Christ... 
It's no longer just you, your old you that lives. It's Christ now that lives in you. You are a new creation. How can I be new if there's something old that's supposed to be dead that's still alive? For you to get to that place, that old self has to be put to death. So the first thing we have to do is just we have to put our former self to death. And you do that through confession and repentance. That's really the work of Christianity, believing, confessing, repenting. I would encourage you to do that regularly. Just pause and just regularly allow God to examine your heart. Don't wait. Don't do it once a week, once a month. The beauty of all this is that we no longer... Hebrews says we have a great high priest who's always available to us. We don't have to wait for a specific time or place. We can go to him right now and confess to him our sins. And he is faithful and he is just. He will forgive us. He will wash us. He will tear up that veil and allow us to experience his glorious presence. Number two, we have to turn down the noise and tune in to God's presence. You want to experience his presence some more? You've got to turn down the noise and tune in to God's presence. Here's what Galatians 5 tells us. So I say, writes Paul, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. And what he means is what you think, what you say, what you feel. Let the Holy Spirit guide your thoughts. Let him guide your attitudes. Let him guide... The con- Let him guide the playlist of your thoughts. Let him choose. Let him direct you. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. How do I stop sinning? Listen to God all the time and do what he says. That's it. Oh, that's, hard. that's hard. It's hard. It's simple, but it's hard. Because the Holy Spirit will never tell you to sin. He will never lead you down sinful thought patterns. He won't tempt you or entice you. If you can get to the place where he directs more of your thoughts than you don't, you will win this battle that goes on inside of you. The sinful nature always wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. The Holy Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you feel like you're not free to carry out your good intentions. That's the battle that goes on. That's the battle that goes on. There's inside of all of us this battle between your sinful nature and the Holy Spirit. And the solution is to turn down that noise and tune in to what God is saying. It's easy to do when we're sitting here in church. But man, it's tough when you get that email from somebody that you were not expecting out of left field. And it is just like, where are they coming from with this? The noise gets louder. Sometimes it's literal. I just don't have time, Pastor. I've been trying. Look, Sometimes you need to turn down the noise in your car, on your television. You know, I see people with, I mean, I see people now at the grocery store where they're unloading the bread and the Coke and everything. They've all got headphones in. It's all well and good. You see me in the yard, I'm going to have my big noise-canceling headphones on in the same place. But what's going on inside those headphones? We've become comfortable filling every empty space in our life with noise. And then we wonder why we don't hear God. Because sometimes He speaks in the booming loud voice, and other times it's the still small voice. You need to recognize both. Maybe the word of God to you is, I've been trying to let you experience one of my presence. I've been talking, but you're too busy putting so much noise in here. Turn it down. Tune in. And that whole art of tuning into the Holy Spirit is a life journey. We can talk more. In fact, I preached on it a couple months ago. We can bring that out and talk about it again. I don't mean to make it sound like it's simple. But I will tell you, if you, week one, if you desire more of God's presence, then you'll get there. If you really desire more, you'll start tuning. And the more you taste of God's presence, the more noise you want to filter out. But you've got to come to a place where you learn to turn down some of the noise. If you're spending all your time with people that gripe and complain or just negative, put some space there and turn down the noise. Look, as a pastor, I've got to recognize who I talk to on a Saturday and a Sunday morning. 
and who I don't. Now, please, if you feel like I avoided you today, it's probably not. I was in membership class. It wasn't. <laughs> but you've got to recognize, sometimes you've got to turn down noise in your life so you're able to tune in. But then there's other people I can talk to for two or three minutes, and as though God is using that person to speak directly into my life, because I was willing to stop and listen, I was able to tune in much quicker. Finally, learn to walk closely with God. So, you, so the part of this is, you know, you experience more of God's presence in your life. You got to live clean. You got to confess, repent. You got to kill the old self. That's a journey. You're not going to be done with that this morning. There's no prayer we can pray. Hey, self is officially crucified. Mm, that's a journey, right? This next one, turn down the noise, tune into God. Well, that's a journey. That's not done at the end of today's message either. And last one, learn to walk close. Pastor, you're not giving me anything I can just accomplish and cross off the to-do list at the end of the day. Good. Because God doesn't want to be on your to-do list to be crossed off. That's how we all feel. If I spent my 10 minutes with God this morning, then I don't have to talk to him for the next 23 hours and 50 minutes. That's not it. I want you to learn to walk closely with God, not visit him occasionally. Walk with him. Walk with him. Man, you talk about old songs, Pastor Stewart. I was in my office on Monday, and I was working on this message, and I just felt a sweet presence of God come to me, and I was brought back to an older song than the one you talked about. I come to the garden alone. While the dew is still on the roses. And there's some beautiful phrases in that song. The joy we share as we, God and I, tarry there, none other has ever known. It's an old song. But man, that just captures in words what the presence of God is like. The joy you share as you tarry you linger as you walk together. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. That's, that's the invitation, friend, for you. You don't have to change a thing about you. He just wants to walk with you. You don't have to get all dolled up and glammed up. He just wants to walk with you and talk with you and he wants to tell you you belong to him and that you are in him and he's you. And I will tell you there is a joy there. In his presence is fullness of joy not diluted joy you get from a this or a that or the other thing or your team wins with a walk-off home run and the ravens go 16 and 0 or whatever there's joy in all those things there's joy in those things but it fades especially the next year when they don't make the playoffs it fades it fades but the joy you will share when you walk closely isn't that what we all really isn't there a magnet in all of us somewhere that is just attracted to a god that wants to just walk with us why wouldn't you want to be with him? If he really is who he says that he is, he knows everything, he loves you completely and perfectly, why wouldn't you want to walk with God? He's waiting on you. Where do you need to start today? Where do you need to start on this? Like I said, none of these things are finite. There's not a cross off the do list to any of these things. These are all part of the, man, I just want to move a little bit incrementally closer to Jesus today. So where do you need to begin? If you go home and try and tackle all of this, you might get overwhelmed and depressed. I don't want you to do that. What needs to be scrubbed from your heart today in order that you can experience more of God's presence? What might you need to confess and repent to God and experience the forgiveness and grace of God today? What noise in your life needs to be turned down in order that the presence of God can be turned up? And are you ready to turn your occasional visits with God into a never-ending walk with Him? Let's pray together as our worship team comes. Let's just invite God's presence just to come and visit us for a moment. Heavenly Father, we 
understand individually, we can prepare ourselves. But when we come together corporately, if we as a church want to enter into your presence, you have to wash all of us. And so in this vulnerable, honest, unguarded moment before you, we open up our hearts to you and we allow the floodlight of your Holy Spirit to search every place. If there's anything in any of us that's not right with you, we confess it to you. We ask for your forgiveness. We invite the blood of Jesus' ultimate sacrifice to be applied to that sin. And we leave it there. And we move away from it into the life that you've intended for each and every one of us. Friend, if you're here this morning and you need to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ and you want to experience all of his glorious presence, not just around you, not just upon you every now and again, like when you sing a worship song and you feel something or you, someone's generous to you and you feel a sense of worthiness or you receive something you didn't deserve out of kindness and you feel the grace of God, not just occasionally, but if you want to invite God to consider your body to be his temple and to come and make his residence and to sit deep inside of you. The process we talked about from the Old Testament, the way that they approached God's presence is it's still kind of the same approach that we use today with a few modifications. We come through the one entrance to, to God and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to come bringing a sacrifice of our own. Jesus has already provided a sacrifice that God has accepted on your behalf. You just simply have to take hold of that for you. The condition is that you have to be willing to confess your sin. And to ask God, not through water that's in a basin, but just through his forgiveness and grace and mercy to wash you clean from those sins. And then Jesus presents you in the Holy of Holies, as it were, to his Father without blemish and without defect. And you get to enjoy all of his glorious presence. It just begins with a simple prayer of confession like this. You just say, dear Jesus, I'm sorry for sinning against you and living my life my own way. Please forgive me. Please wash me of my sins. Please give me a clean start with you today. I invite you to come and make your home deep inside of me. I want all of your presence to fill my life. I don't want to live the life I was living. I want to live the life that you want me to live. So I choose to follow you and to grow in knowing you better each day incrementally as long as you give me opportunity to do so. I look forward to all that I'm going to learn about you. And I look forward to giving you all that is me. Others of us might have already made that decision this morning. But I feel a deep stirring in my own heart, not just today, but over these last several months, just a deep awakening for more of his, God's presence. I want Echo to be known not just, as a, not just as a community church, and that's what we are, but I want it to be known and gain a reputation for being a place where God's presence is, where people can come and experience God. I think that's God's desire for all churches everywhere. I don't think it's unique to us. But friends, we need to seek it, to press in, to push in, to boldly come into God's presence and experience that. And all of his glory and all of his splendor and all of his power and strength and all of his encouragement. 